Okay, we are now live on Facebook, and I do believe we are live on Sermon Audio. Okay, well, we, we believe we're live. That's yeah. always a good thing. Ah, I'll take the glasses off because I can't see with them and I can't see without them, which is the nature of my agedness, my dotage. Okay, here we are off and running, sort of, October the 3rd, 2020. Oh, it's not October the 3rd, is it? It's the 10th. It's the 10th. Yes. That's my fault, not yours. That's right. That's right. It is the 10th. Because I wrote this a while back, didn't I? Right. Got it. Now I remember everything about your mistake. Yes. Okay, your infirmities. You're as old as everybody else around here. October the 10th, 2021, lecture discussion number 151 on the book of Joel, Daniel, Revelation, Ecclesiastes, Job, 1 Kings 13, 2 Kings 23. Okay, we, we got a, a bit of a mess to clean up with respect to the accumulation of threads or paths or diversions or debris, whatever uh, best describes the remaining inventory that is that is this apportionment that I have been identifying as the immortality of animals. And as is my custom, I'm sure you know this, I devoted time to reviewing all of the previous seven lectures. This is number eight. And I've been sifting and tallying up everything that has been left behind. And and of that, those which need some attention. And there is a substantial volume of those. So the usual problem here at Cliffside is to somehow triage uh, this rubble that I have accumulated, always being fully aware that it's impossible for me, and, and I am the HTRP. I can't do it. It's just not, I can't resolve every if, issue to some level of unabridgment. It's just not something I'm able to do. I've never been able to do it. That's the nature of the one who wrote the book. He's infinite, and uh, and so you just can't find everything and get to everything in a lifetime. And as all of you have come to realize my methodology, the discursive approach, <laughs> which I've yet to meet somebody else that has the discursive approach, and uh, anyway, and that is to assess the the towering pile that I have left behind, and then add more to it. That's my method which is what we're going to be doing today. And it begins with a letter from uh, uh, Dime Box Dave. Dime, Dime ba- uh, sorry, Dime Box Dan. Sorry, Dan. Too many Daves around here. And he perhaps asks the most tangential, uh, tangential question possible as it relates to this subject. It's impossible to get his question into this lecture, but that's why we're going to do it. Yes, sir. By the way, he is now listening live. Oh, is he? It's going to be so much fun as I define funness to do this, but just realize that, yes, I'm all, I'm aware of what the problems are. And so here's his, here's his Daniel from Texas. And all hail Pastor Stevo. I pray that this will find you and all our Cliffsidian or Cliffsidian. We haven't decided if we silenced the eye, have we? Cliffsidian sounds like a disease, so we might go with that. Cliffsidian, more reptilian. So we'll have to figure out which one. Anyway, all our Cliffsidian family well and prepared for our twinkling of an eye moment, and that is the truth. We're all up and ready for that. 
Anywho, while transcribing and researching your lecture number 146, and Dan does transcribe this for those of you who want to know where that comes from, which was titled God Saves Man and Animals. I do not title them. I do title them. What did I title this one? Lecture number 151. All the titling is done by uh, uh, Dave if he exists, right? The Bible says his love is faithful to both. That's the title. God Saves Man and Animals. The Bible says his love is faithful to both. I'm running into trouble with the terms and translations for beast of the earth. And that's a problem, and I'll deal with that here in a minute. Note, this was before you had started a new flip side on the holy dry erase board. I found this weird website. Face it, most of them are pretty weird nowadays and pretty much follows most of your line of teaching. But then they veer off into strange commentary on the race of men that are not of the line of Adam. Quoting there are he's quoting this place now. He says there are eight different Hebrew word, Hebrew and Greek words, uh, behema uh, being in nefesh, and the ones that we're, you're familiar with if you've been watching the rest of them, shah, sheva. Uh, but anyway, and then this site says all are translated into the one English word beast. That's oh, not totally accurate, but uh, I won't disagree with the, the, what they're trying to say. But they each have different meanings in the original Hebrew and Greek languages, which were lost in the translation into English. And again, that is not necessarily inaccurate. It's not perfect, but it's not horrifying. The words behama is translated 136 times as beast and 57 times as cattle. It describes beasts who can cry mightily to God and who can turn away from evil, who wear sackcloth, who are circumcised, who can lie down with a woman to have... Uh, relations with her who have a conscience, who are put to death for violating God's law and have possessions which can be sold or redeemed, who hold authority which can be taken away, who have feet and hands, who are inhabitants of cities, who God threatens uh, interaction with Israelites and Judahites, who can be hired, who are kept in tents and who have boils on their bodies. What they're trying to say is that uh, uh, all of that applies to animals if you use the scripture there, uh, it goes on to say the Hebrew word shah, which you know, shayah, is translated 143 times as life, 99 times as living, 67 times as liveth, 44 times as lives, 76 times as beasts. Um, and so there is a great deal of difficulty here as I tried to bring on. And all I can say is welcome to the Internet. This is the kind of stuff that is on the internet. This, this is, I don't know how to, this, this is essentially, I'll put it on the board here so you can see, it's called pre-Adamic. That's what it's called. Or pre-Adamite. Pre-Adamites. Um, it's the pre-Adamic man position. I should put the man, pre-Adamic man. And you can understand what that's trying to say. And it is nonsense. It isn't true. There's so many mistakes in what I read that these people believe I can't even begin to, to deal with it in one lecture. But uh, I'll just get enough to, to answer this question because I think it's valuable. It, it, unfortunately, this pre-Adamic man position is utilized to reconcile atheistic evolutionary philosophy with scripture. That's the whole plan. Because they... Uh, um, and that's how it fits with Ecclesiastes 3.21, because the same thing happens at 3.21. They, those who have the position that animals have do not have the nefesh, they do not have the shayah, they do not have the rah, 
Those who believe that uh, want to reconcile the death of animals with atheism, with evolutionary atheism. That is where it came from. There was no position like that in the church for 1900 years. Now it's it's prevalent. I, I can find a pastor every day. I get on the phone and call any pastor, and he will say to me, "Animals are not nefesh. They are not ruach. They are not shaya." What yes. Was, what was the name of that um, website that you go to? I don't know. Is it kind I of similar problem where you go put in like the oh oh uh, yeah the Greek translations or the Hebrew translations. Yes, that's what he's describing here. It was Bible Hub, is what that is. And you can find the Latin, you can find the Greek, you can find the Hebrew, you can find the Old English. Uh, Have you found that kind of problem in there? Yes, I have. Okay. But not, not to the extent that they're saying. It is true that the translators of the original texts did not, they did not take the nuances of Hebrew very well. And so the Old King James, for example, everything was beast. Just defaulted right to beast. So there's no simple study. You just you have to figure it out. And in other words, what do you think, based on the information that you have, is the right word here? And uh, and uh, but again, that's how this the pre-Adamic man position and the Ecclesiastes 3:21 position that says animals perish or they're annihilated or extinguished. They have no souls. Both of those positions come out of evolutionary atheism. And uh, the church needs to recognize that, and then immediately you should start off the bat saying, "Okay, if that's where, if that's the genesis, or if that's the origin of this position, is people trying to reconcile with Darwinian evolution, then I need to get rid of it." Because you see, a literalist, someone who adheres to the literal account of Scripture, and that would be me, that would be Cliffside. Everybody that uh, will endure a cliffside is going to end up being a literalist. So someone who uh, adheres to the literal account of Scripture, that these were literally created people, Adam and the woman Eve, who actually spoke what is recorded in Genesis and did what was recorded in Genesis. Uh, For that matter, the entire... Everyone in the Bible, all of those people in the Bible really existed. They were real people, exactly as described. Uh, And the Bible in its original form, the mosaic in the Hebrew, the mosaic manuscripts, for example, the handwritten Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, the, the Pentateuch of Moses, it's perfect. All of the Bible is perfect in its original form. And everyone named again was, everyone in the Bible was real people, real persons, real events. Literalism is obviously in conflict with paleoanthropology. I could barely say anthropology. I need more water. Uh, Which is paleoanthropology is the proposal that uh, human beings evolved by some process. They will say a natural process. But um, I think that's in error immediately. But they'll say there's a process outside of the supernatural by which these beings evolved. And this is where you find this pre-Adamic man joining in from the church, 
the church has decided this is something that we need to discuss. And who was the guy? Hugh Ross? Is that who he was? Is that, do I have him right, Dave? You, you, you fought this fight as much as I have. Hugh Ross had, had a pre-Adamic man position, for example. Uh, James Dobson, all kinds of people. It, it permeated back in the uh, 80s or 90s. I can't remember for sure. But any, any, anyway, uh, the, the proposal is that human beings were before Adam. And so to crystallize this issue, this is the supernatural versus the process, some process, which immediately raises the question of whether there is a natural process. If I have a supernatural process, do I have a natural process ever? Is a natural process real? In other words, we're back to Max Planck, the father of quantum physics, right? At the core of everything, he said, is consciousness. Everything postulates consciousness. Well, consciousness is a supernatural process, not a natural process. Essentially, what he's saying is there is no such thing as a natural process. The debate then is the supernatural versus nothing. Uh, But uh, most of you, all of you already knew that. Anyway, some Christians want acceptance with the atheistic physicalism. Uh, which dominates academia. Some Christians then are willing to manipulate the Bible to allow for something, anything, anything they can get that will conform to evolutionary philosophy. And you should not be shocked. Don't give me your shock face. You, you shouldn't be shocked by that. That's been going on for ever since the 1920s. That's my That's your reject face? Yeah. Okay. And, and so we end up with this pre-Adamic... Um, Man position. And the ones that hold this accept evolutionary precepts, including their dating methodologies, as having been proven beyond any other conclusion. They'll say that it is a, a settled condition. Proven science. And since these super suppositions, which is one of these, obviously adhere to paleoanthropological beliefs, then there must have been some sort, they say, if we're going to accept uh, paleoanthropology or anthropological systems, then there must have been some sort of human-like beings that predate Adam. That's where it comes from. And here's your Australopithecus and uh, Lewis and Robert Leakey and, and all of this stuff. And Austral, Austral, uh, the, the Australopithecines, they're not in the human ancestry. They were never considered to be human ancestry. And people who discovered it, the Leakeys, for example, discovered something that had already been discovered and set outside the human ancestry. What goes on in the evolutionary philosophy is incredibly corrupt. And it doesn't take long to figure out that these people go into a situation with a predisposed position. They will not accept any evidence to the contrary of it. Or they'll manipulate that evidence no matter what because they have discarded supernatural is non-scientific. They've defined it as such. Max Planck disagreed. George Berkeley disagreed. Brilliant people have recognized the flaw in that thinking. It is an evolutionary structure that is atheistic at its core. Anyway, the pre-Adamics insist that the Bible doesn't say ever. It says nowhere. They'll tell you nowhere does the Bible say that Adam was the first man. There's nowhere in Scripture. You'll see that constantly. And what's what's the first thing you say when you hear that? You go, really? Really? That's your view. And I've run into hundreds of them. Not hundreds, but many, many, many. 
And my first suggestion is uh, 1 Corinthians 15.45. Suppose we look at that, I say to them. And so it is written. I won't read it from the Bible. I'll just give you this part of it. And, and so it is written. The first man, Adam, became a living being. That's what 1 Corinthians 15.45. So the nowhere it's written should stop right there, right? Should be over, gone. No. No. That's New Testament. Okay. The Greek word used there for first is protos, which means first in time or first in place. That's what it means. The Greek word for man in the or the, the Greek for man in, in that verse in fifteen forty five of First Corinthians is anthropos, from which we get anthropology. It's the study of humans. Adam is the first in time, first in place human. That's what 1 Corinthians says. And that should be enough to end this assertion, but it gets worse for the pre-Adamics, actually. But it, <laughs> no. The Greek words for living being are psychon and sosan. Zosan. Both are translated life, living, alive, soul, and being. So 1 Corinthians 15.45 is saying the first in time, first in place human being is a living, alive soul being. That's what it says. With all of that, which is to, which, uh, to repeat a bit here, that should have been the death blow to this aberration masquerading as doctrinal. Uh, the Holy Spirit, using the Apostle Paul as a vehicle, placed these words into the Word of God, and it starts out, and so it was written. And there, what did the Holy Spirit through Paul mean by that? What's that mean? It is written. The obvious question is, is not only is it written, but where is it written? Where is it written that Adam is the first in place, first in time, human, alive, soul, living being, which is the first time that's written in the Bible. And the obvious answer is the Hebrew Old Testament. So if you want to disregard 1 Corinthians as saying it's New Testament, 1 Corinthians is referring to the Old Testament. The subsequent obvious question is, where in the Old Testament is 1 Corinthians referring to 1545? And you should all shout out in one accord. What? What should you shout out? Oh, yes, you should. Genesis 2.7. Genesis 3 7 and 1 Corinthians 15 45. Oops. Those guys are tied together. 1 Corinthians 15 45 is referencing Genesis 2 7. That's where it's written. For those of you who are interested in such things, the Greek word translated, it is written, is always translated, it is written. Sometimes it says it has been written or has been had been written or it's written, but it's every time written. The point for today, yea, a point, is that Genesis 2-7 provides information to 1 Corinthians 15-45. In other words, they are additive. We can place both uh, verses into an equation. And you know I love equations. There's always math. People that say there's never not math. There's always math. I was told it wouldn't be math. No, you weren't. You were told you were told there would always be math. In other words, uh, Genesis two seven equals First Corinthians fifteen forty five, but also Genesis two seven plus First Corinthians fifteen forty five actually gives you a fantastic paragraph when you add them both together. 
Now I'm going to do that for you. Here's the equation. And the Lord God formed the first in time, the first in place human man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of the spirit of life and the first in time, first in place human man became a living soul, a live being. That's what you get when both of those are put together. Okay? Now, another thing here is that... uh, they do not like, uh, thus, they go on to say this. They went on to say all those traits that I gave you, that only homo sapiens have such traits and capabilities. And that's not true. Because the cherubim have those traits and capabilities. They say, uh, thus the word behema can only describe human beings. And so everywhere that behema is being used to describe or being translated animals, that's a mistake. Because they're looking at the pre-Adamic men as being a combination of Adam or human and animal. Evolutionary, right? Uh, so that's where it comes from. So we have to we have to deal with this behema. And, and I have to concede that Hebrew is difficult for English translation. It, it is. And translators... The Old King James, I love the Old King James. Uh, they overwhelmingly translate Behama as beasts. And it is true that Behama or Behama is rendered animals, it's rendered beasts, it's rendered cattle, livestock, depending on which English translation you may be reading. And therefore, you can't decide because of that unless you take into account the context. So you have to pay attention to the context. The pre-Adamic or the, the, the Adamite proponents do not consult context, especially with respect to Ezekiel 1.5 and Revelation 4.6-11. through Because there I have the four living creatures. Let me repeat that. The four. Just in case you didn't see that. Four. I might have to emphasize four. Can I put the number four? As big as I can on the board. Maybe that will help. Can I circle it for you guys out there that have this position? I'll circle it. There are four living creatures, Ezekiel 1, 5, Revelation 4, 6 through 11, Revelation 5 also. The four living creatures, the four living beasts. The old King James calls them the four living beasts. And that's what they're saying. Oh, okay, see, these are beasts. These are... And so they have this tremendous problem. So you're doing something that must be necessary. I will stop and stare at you. Stop. Okay. She retreats back to her place of rest. There's four living creatures. Um, That's what the King James Version calls them. Uh, and it should be note, noted that the King James Revelation 5.13 did not translate this word as beasts. Sisma. It doesn't do that. So in other words, 5.11 and 5.13 or 4.6-11 and 5.13 and 5.11 aren't, there's something different about them. And that, of course, when we talked about this already, this is First Timothy 4.4. 4, and this is Acts 10. Uh, that's 
for that katisma sends you. In both places, in 5.13 and 10, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, katisma is translated animals, and that's correct. It's, so, if you don't like the beasts in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5, and you can't figure out who the four living creatures are, you still have to deal with 5.13, 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, and Acts 10. Because the Catechism sends us to 1 Timothy 4.4, 4, where, in, again, in both places, it's animals in 5.13 Revelation and in 1 Timothy 4.4. 4. Without dispute, 1 Timothy 4.4 4 then lets us know that the great sheet, the great sheet that descends from heaven, Acts 10, 9 through 15, that great sheet is filled with animals that are already in heaven somehow. Remember that from last week? And, and God says those animals have been cleansed and do not call defile which I have cleansed, which God had cleansed, which as you know, that's saved. And hopefully you remember Acts 10, 9 through 15 and 1 Timothy 4, 4 from that lecture, lecture number 150, as I have titled it. And Acts 10, 9 through 15, let me put it on the board. Somebody will want to see it on the board. Acts 10 and Timothy are critically important to know how they link together. They're necessary in order to correctly identify who is who in Revelation 4 and Revelation 5 were the pre-Adamics. Can't figure it out. They think that Revelation 5 and Revelation 4 and, and Ezekiel makes Bahama mean something other than animals. And that, of course, is where they, that's a terrific flaw in their thinking. And that's where the pre-Adamic position folks go astray again. Because the King James, the old King James, translates Zun and Zoa as beasts. And both are Greek words for animals. They mistake the cherubim who are angels with animals and human qualities or attributes in Revelation 4 and 5 uh, as animals. But the cherubim are so described uh, by these words vaguely. They are similar in appearance. So they're, but the, they are not animals. Then they are not human. They are angels. And it also says in Revelation 4, 7 that they're like a lion. They're not a lion, but they're like a lion. They're like a calf. They're like a man. They're like a flying eagle. But they're not any of those. And once again, as before, as before in Revelation 4 or Revelation 5, what they're revealing is that heaven is filled with uncountable numbers of angels, animals, and mankind. That's what Revelation 4 and 5 is doing. And people get confused because the English translators just went beasts in the Old Testament all across the board. And didn't make differentiation. But this is where when you find this word here in Revelation 5.13. Now we know for sure that this is animal. We've got it here. We've got it in all three of them. It's not. It's a different word than Bahama. And so again, in heaven, Revelation 4, Revelation 5. Add in 1 Timothy 4, 4, add in Acts 10, 9 through 15. We learn that the heaven is filled with this unknowable number of angels, animals, and mankind. Only God can, can add it up. There are so many. It's innumerable for mankind. 
And so we have this angel, angel, angels, animal, mankind, the three domains in heaven, singing and shouting praises, all of them. Revelation 5.11. Then I looked around the throne of heaven, Revelation 5.1, and I heard the voices of many angels, the living creatures and the elders. And so, and the animals. I have living creatures, elders, and animals. There. Oops, did I miss a page? No. Now, to be thorough, the pre-Adamics do not accept that cherubim are angelic beings. They say they're not. Really? Yes. Well, there is. That's where that's where their confusion comes. That's where they get. Uh, they say that. Uh, uh, these are these are beings that hold authority that can be taken away, but have and have feet and hands, so they can't be animals. Well, they're not animals. Uh, they don't see them as spiritual beings. Satan, for example, was the highest-ranking cherubim. Ezekiel twenty-eight fourteen. He's the anointed cherub. So he was a cherubim. Is a cherubim. Second Samuel two eleven describes cherubim as having wings of wind. As does Psalm 18.10. Ezekiel 1.13 says they appear as like burning coals of fire. Uh, torches. The fire is really bright. The, and out of the fire comes lightning. Now, name me an animal that has that, those characteristics. Ezekiel 1.14. The cherubim move like flashes of lightning, it says. They clearly are not animals. So when you read Revelation 4 and you get confused by Zun and Zoa and the fact that the old King James just had a blanket uh, uh, translation of beasts. You st- that doesn't work. You have to you have to find all the pieces, figure out what's going on. You're in the throne room of God. The cherubim are angelic. They're angelic guardians of the throne room. That's what Ezekiel ten five through nineteen says. So they belong in the throne room, which is where they are found in Revelation four and Revelation five. So. Why does the Greek use Zun and Zoa all over the place when it could easily be referring to animals and can be referring to cherubim? Why did it do that? Why does the King James, the old King James, just say they're all beasts? Why do we have this problem? Revelation 5.13, 1 Timothy 4.4, Acts 10. 9 through 15 establishes that animals are cleansed and in heaven at Revelation 5. Covered it last Sunday. Got to repeat it. And of course, Genesis and Revelation are the first and the last books of the Bible for a reason. Genesis presents the destruction of sin, which included not just the animal kingdom and the human kingdom, but also the angelic realm. We have destruction of sin in all three dominions, all three kingdoms. Revelation provides the restoration. So Genesis gives us the destruction and Revelation gives us the restoration, the ultimate solution. So our expectation with the context of what Revelation is, is that we would find those realms that were affected by the destruction of sin at the restoration. And they absolutely are Revelation 5 and 6. I'm sorry, 4 and 5. And then, of course, we have Psalm 36, 5 through 7, which we've discussed. Hopefully, I've got to keep discussing it. We've discussed in previous lectures with this, within the series. It validates what I just told you is my position, but it validates my position in Revelation 5, 11 through 14. Because Psalm 36, 6 announces definitively that because God is merciful, because he is faithful, he is righteous, he is just, he will save Yahshua. 
is the word. He will save. Yasha. It's not preserve. It's not deliver. It's save. It's salvation. He will save man and beast. The, the Bahama. The animals of Genesis 1.24. At the end of the at the end of this, he saves the animals, he saves humanity, and of course we have faithful angels. The pre-edemics do not know about Psalm 36, 5. They don't know. 5 through 7. They never they don't have any idea it's in the Bible. Nor do they notice the number four, dimension four, of Revelation. 4, 5 through 5, 14. The four living creatures are called Zun or Zoa. The four living creatures, uh, again, Zun or Zoa. But also it says the living creatures are also Zun. So you have to ask yourself, why didn't it bring the number four there? Why does it say the four living creatures are Zun, but then also say the living creatures are Zun? So the four is not there. And every creature, when it says all the creatures, it says Tisma. Which is, which is absolutely animals. The cleansed animals, of which everyone is good, it says, 1 Timothy 4 4. Again, do not call that which God has cleansed defiled. I reword it. Do not call unsaved what God has called saved. Same thing. And I'm right. I got Psalm 36 on my side. And there is Beha. And, and do not call unsaved what God has called saved, what God has saved. That's the test. That's what we've been talking about in Ecclesiastes 3, 18 through 22. That's the test. Don't do that. Do you do that? Why do you do it? And they're adamant, aren't they? Dave's talking to me about somebody that, that he ran across and just, bam, animals are not, they do not have souls. Ignore all the Hebrew, the nefesh, the ruach, the shah, the behemoth. Ignore all of that. Ignore 722 of Genesis. Ignore 120, 121, 124, 128, 130. Ignore all of those. Animals do not have living, they're not living souls. They do not have the breath of the Spirit of God inside them. Only man has that, they say. And, the, and Ecclesiastes is saying, don't call unsaved what I have saved. Would you put it together with Acts uh, 10, 9 through 15 and 1 Timothy 4, 4, 4. And so when you read Revelation 5, 13, you know that you have four living creatures. You know those are the cherubim of Ezekiel 1, Ezekiel 10, Genesis 3, 24. And therefore, they're not the Bahama. They're not animals. Now, Revelation 5.11 has living creatures, angels, and then it has living creatures, and then it has mankind. So, you have to figure out how to separate that. You know that we have three dominions. We have angels, we have animals, and we have mankind. That's the order. So, do not, when you look at Revelation 5.11, you have to start separating it based on what you know and the context that it's in. And you know this is the resurrection. It's the restoration. All living beings. So that creation order, you recognize angels, uh, animals, and mankind. Living creatures also zoom, just as the four living creatures, angels. And again, King James defaults all of it to beast, and that's, a, that's unfortunate. 
Because you you got to know things like this, that Matthew was originally, the book of Matthew, Gospel of Matthew, Matthew was originally written in Hebrew, and the Gospel of Mark was written in Latin originally, and Luke is uh, Greek, and John, we can fight over. Uh-huh. Gospel of John, they say, was written in Greek. Some say, no, it was written in Aramaic. So you have to decide. Hebrew, Greek, Latin, and Aramaic were all well-known, if not the dominant uh, languages of the Middle East. Uh, and if John wrote in Aramaic, then we approach Zun and Zoa somewhat differently, don't we? We have to find out what John meant. Did he? He did. If he used Zun and he used Zoa, and the Old King James just said everything is beast, did John have a distinction between the four living creatures and the living creatures, or the four living creatures and the behemoth, the animals? Did he make that distinction? Would John know that we have three dominions, all of them have fallen, in the sense that all of them need restoration? All of them are in a corrupted state. And that the restoration, of course, would restore all of them. If John, again, wrote in Aramaic, then we have got to know that. And So go ahead and research which one you think it is, because it affects how you uh, deal with Revelation as well as the Gospel of John. You should know that there's a debate also, just really fast. How's my time? Okay, I'm doing good. You should know that there's a debate as to the authorship uh, with regard to the Gospel of John and the Gospel, or the Book of Revelation. Um, Many out there, you'll find it everywhere, suggest that John the Apostle and John of Patmos, Revelation 1-9, are two different people. So you have John the Apostle, the beloved uh, the one, what about John? That John, and then you have John of Patmos. Um, but just as with the pre-Adamic diversion, this you, you should immediately just jump that, because the problem that you see right off the bat is only the Gospel of John and the Book of Revelation refer to Jesus Christ as the Word. It's the only Bible, only Gospel that does it. He, John, alone calls Christ the Word. And that is a reference to Genesis 1. Only John, the Apostle, did that. Referred, refers to Jesus Christ. So the authors of John the Gospel and the John and the book of Revelation are clearly the same guy. And not only does he refer to Christ as the Word of God and the Word, but he also calls him the Lamb of God. Only Revelation and only the Gospel of John does that. And there are records of the early church fathers. They actually read these letters. They had the physical letters in front of them. The, the phys- they had the book of Revelation and the book of the manuscripts that ultimately became those books. They had the original writings. And guess what those founding fathers all said, the apostolic fathers, if you want to call them that. They all unanimously testified that the author of both was John the Apostle. John the Apostle and John of Patmos is the same. And such conforms uh, with uh, John 10, 21, 20 through 25, where I referenced, where Peter says, asks, but Lord, what about John? Well, what about John? Why is he different? He is different. We have to deal with what about John. Remind me next week, what about John? Uh, I, I believe what about John ends up being a reference to Revelation 4.1, where John is taken up. 
He's different. He's taken up. He's the only apostle that is taken up while he's still alive. So what about John refers to that? In my view. Anyway, the early church established John as the writer of the Gospel of John, the book of Revelation, and the three epistles. First John, Second John, Third John. And there is, you, you can have a goofy opinion, but you can't defend it. I will not, I will not uh, try to interfere with your free will. I will just say that you, you can ha- believe whatever you want. I'm not going to stop you. Not no interest in stopping you. Be completely crazy if you wish, but don't think you can defend it. Uh, n- n- nonetheless, you're going to find that people say otherwise that John didn't write anything, and there's always muck in the internet to wade through. Avoid it if you can. It's just exactly that. Whenever these kinds of things, the pre-Edemic man or John the Apostle is not the author of Revelation, always ask, always begin with the basic question, what happens if I believe this? What has been destroyed doctrinally? What is being destroyed? What truth of Scripture is being erased or weakened at the, at the best? Erased at the worst? The pre-Edemic position just destroys the book of Genesis. Uh, and uh, if we concede it, if we concede the stripping and the erasing here, if we say, okay, pre-edemic, let's go for it. Uh, if you if you go with that, then um, then there's no original sin of Adam, because the original sin would be in the pre-edemic men. Because what happened to the pre-edemic men? If you buy the premise, they're dead. What killed them? What can kill you? Sin. So Adam is not the first to sin, right? He's not first in place, first in time. Romans five twelve through twenty is rendered mute. The free gift, the grace of Christ, his sacrifice is diminished, if not eliminated. Through Adam came death, through Christ comes life. If Adam is not the one through whom death came, if I have these Adamic men, pre-Adamic men, then that, that verse is useless. And also, why would Christ, the second Adam, the last Adam, why would he bring life? He would find the first pre-Adamic man that died, Right? His name is, I think, Bill. He'd go find Bill, Fred, pick a name, Steve. That's the guy. He's thousands of years or millions of years or trillions of years. You know, what a quadrillion years. Pick a year, whatever you need. Make your math work. You pick that and you say, okay, Christ has got to go be. He wouldn't be the, the last Adam. He would be the last Bill. Ivan, I like, you know, Cyrano, I don't know, pick a name. The free gift of grace is, is of Christ is gone if you take that position. Uh, through Adam comes death, through the second Adam comes life. If Adam is not the first in place, the first man in time, the first man to receive the breath of life, then the judicial solution for sin and death is fragmented, it's incomplete. I should interject Romans 5.14 because this is a powerful verse. I just can't even begin to tell you how powerful it is. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses. That's what it said. Even, now here we go. Nevertheless, death reigned from Adam to Moses even over those who had not sinned. Who is that? Who is the those? Who are the only ones at the time that Adam fell who had not sinned? 
who were the only living creatures at the time of Adam's fall that had not sinned. Because there, Romans 5.14 says, even over those who did not sin. Was it the angels? Did the angels sin? Yeah. Satan proved that. He's there tempting Eve. So angels had sinned. Jude 6. Genesis 6. Mankind sin? Absolutely. Animals? So Romans 5.14 is referring to who? Has to be. At the time that Adam fell, who had not sinned? But death reigns over them also. That's You have to solve that. Why does death? Why? Why does death enter into the animal kingdom? They didn't sin. Romans 5.14 is an incredibly powerful verse. Animals did not sin, but nonetheless die as man dies. And again, Romans 5.14 is referencing uh, Genesis 3.6. What was the sin? Because it says, did not sin. It doesn't say, did not have sins. It's, it's referencing a particular sin there. And that is the sin of Adam. And as much as I understand Adam's typology and he's honored in Scripture, he nonetheless is through the because of his decision, death enters. And if Adam is the first is, not, is he's the first in place and the first human in time. If he's not that, then the death of animals can't be explained, and you've wiped that out. Animals are dying. If Adam is not the first in place and the first human in time. Uh, then animals dying cannot be explained. And the sacrificial system, of course, is ruined. What's the point of sacrificing innocent animals if Adam is the uh, is one of many, many pre-Adamites and Adam all died, all were sinful? What are you doing with the sacrificial system? If Adam's not the first to bring sin and death into the creation, if death does not reign from Adam, then Genesis 3.21 has no meaning. Why did God sacrifice those two lambs? If I got a whole bunch of pre-Adam men out there somewhere, buried in the dust. If Adam's not the first body to go to dust, then the sacrificial system is gone. Genesis 3.21, this makes it clear, that must be the very first animal slain. If not, and Adam's got to be the cause of that. If they're not the first animal slain, then we got big problems here. Is it your position, let me ask you this hypothetically to all of you who have this position, by that I mean 90%, I wish it wasn't so, but probably 90% of all the pastors in this country have this. Is it your position that God, who just says in Romans 5.14 that animals did not sin, is it your position that he will forsake, he will extinguish, he will annihilate, blot out the innocent that did not sin of Rome, that he defines in Romans 5.14, and he does it again in Acts 10, 9 through 15. <sighs> Makes me mad. Romans 5.14, another biblical proof of the immortality, the resurrection, the salvation of animals. God will save the innocent again. Psalm 36, 5 through 7. Genesis 1-3 has got to be perfect. 1 Corinthians 15-35-58 is tied to Genesis 1-3. through Resurrection, the life, the second 
Adam, the life-giving Adam, Jesus Christ, resurrects based on the original sin of the first Adam. There has to be a first Adam. This is not possible. Or there's no resurrection. We are sown in corruption, the Bible says. So too are the animals. The Bible says it again in 1 Corinthians 35 through 58. The animals and us are both in corruption. But we will both be raised in glory. The corruptible must put on incorruption. It's a must. It says it must happen. Now, a lot of people think it must happen for us to get to heaven. God says it must happen because it must happen. Because of Psalm 36 as an example. Genesis 1-3 declares the turmoil, the corruption, the wreckage. Again, Revelation 21-22 through proclaims the restoration, the renewal, the pre-edemic nonsense in his zeal to embrace atheistic evolutionary monism has cast out I'm sorry, has cast out resurrection. Atheism is absolutely in opposition to resurrection. Why would you accept something that opposes resurrection? Atheists and monists, as you know, deny the existence of Genesis 2-7. They, they say there is no breath of the spirit of life. You only are physical. There's no supernatural. There's no breath in you. There's no God in you at all. You were just a physical being waiting to die of a physical process. That's what they say. Evolutionary philosophy teaches that death it prevails. Death is all-powerful. There is no solution to death. Death ends life is their incantation. That's what they they, they say over and over again like some kind of pagan monk. And that's a great lie. It's a wicked lie. And yet it is embraced by the church. What is going on? Is there any hope for us? Yes. It's going to look bad for a while, though. Why would anyone want to desire to embrace this? The truth is not that death ends life. The truth is that life ends death. That's how it works. Genesis 3.17, because Adam had taken from the tree, breaking the commandment, Genesis 2.17, the dust of the earth is cursed, that from which the animals and, Adams were, and Adam was formed. See, he's formed from the dust. dust. Can't say it, i got to speed up. <coughs> he's formed from the dust. <coughs> so are animals, Genesis 2.19, Genesis 2.7, as well as every tree, Genesis 2.9, <coughs> formed, formed from the dust. And now they're cursed. Excuse me. <coughs> Drink. Yeah. Take a minute. i got to hurry. Okay. Okay. A couple of questions really bounce out of here. We have, we got they require attention, examination. Why did God, the Elohim, the us, Genesis two nine, Genesis one one, Genesis one twenty six, three twenty two, two seven, two nineteen? Why did the Elohim? That's the us. It's, it's the great us. Why did the Elohim make living beings, the ones with the breath of God, with bodies from the dust? Why not make bodies ex nihilo? From nothing. He didn't. He said dust. He didn't just go poof. Dust. I'm going to make him from dust. He uses dust. The bodies go to dust. Ecclesiastes 3.20.12.7 Dust is not nothingness. The Elohim will not, does not employ nothingness with respect to the formation of the bodies of animals and mankind, nor were the trees from nothingness. They were from something. He says so. Dust. Somethingness. And if you've listened to Cliffside for a while, you'll now notice that I'm bringing in back to the front here, Ezekiel 28 and Isaiah 14. That's the timeline of the fall of Satan, hovering over it as we, we can't get rid of it. 
The fall of Satan has a causative relationship to the formation of Adam and to the animals and the trees from the dust. And the fact that the bodies go back to dust. Ex nihilio is Latin, as you know. And it's necessary to be careful with ex nihilo. You have creatio, or creatio, ex nihilio. And that's commonly used without concentration. That means creation from nothing. Why do they say that? One must first decide if nothing exists. That's a trick question. Does nothingness exist? Is there such a thing as nothingness? The definition of nothingness has to be established. For example, you have creatio ecdi, which means God created from within himself. Uh, you're probably aware, John 1, Revelation 19:13. Christ is the word of God. And therefore, Jesus Christ is the one who spoke the words of Genesis 1. He's the speaker there. That's him. Triune Elohim. He's the one that we heard. Anyway, it is correct, in my opinion, to use ex nihilo. Creatio ex nihilo. If you specify, if before you say it, you, you have to ask this question, or you have to say this. You have to say that God is. If you say that, then you can use creatio ex nihilo. Because now you're no longer saying creation from nothing. Creation from God inside of God himself. And if God is and God is, then there is never nothing. Does that make sense? Good. I got, I got people going crazy all over the place out there. I guarantee it. That explains why the body of his... Uh, of uh, of having to return beings, I'm sorry, that, that is, explains why the bodies of his living beings return to dust. Because there's still something. Because he's something. If you say there's nothing, that he created from nothing, then you're, you're walking into a trap. Nothingness. Yeah, you're, you're saying nothingness exists. Nothingness. nothingness does not exist. There's always something. God deliberately, purposely returns the dead bodies to that from which they came, and by doing so, he announces resurrection and refutes nothingness and annihilationism. Because if there was annihilationism, the bodies wouldn't decay to dust. They would just annihilate. Nothingness and annihilationism, both of those are lies. God is something. Existence is something. Always existence. Existence is something. And that was Max Planck's point, right? George Berkeley, reality descends from consciousness. Living beings, you cannot imagine. You can try it, take the test. I've said it many times. You cannot imagine ceasing to exist. You can't do it. And you cannot imagine nothingness. It's impossible. You have something trying to imagine nothingness. It's impossible. Can't do it. There is no nothingness. So where did the dust come from? Where did the water come from? Genesis 1-2. Where did the darkness come from? Genesis 1-2-4. through 4. Where did the firmament come from? You'll hear all the time, God spoke everything out of nothingness, won't you? Well, you have to be careful. You can say it if you know what you're saying. But it's a trap. And it gives people the wrong impressions. The better question is, is when did the dust come? That's again, Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14. 
why sends you to Ezekiel 28, Isaiah 14 as well, Revelation 12, Jude 6, Genesis 6, and, and you know all that, blah, blah, blah. Make him stop. I, I know. The point for today, finally again, yay, is Ecclesiastes 12, 7, Ecclesiastes 3, 20, Genesis 3, 17 are wonderful truths. Our bodies, the bodies of the animals, do not go into nothingness. They go into dust. Big difference. Once you recognize that the living God, God is the God of the living. He said, I'm the God of the living as he defines living. All that live, he is not the God of the nothingness. If there is God, there is no nothingness because God is something. It's necessary to refine our definition of creatio ec nihilo. Confine that to matter. And you'll be okay. You'll be doctrinally sound. Do not apply nothingness to God. He is incompatible because omnipresence is everywhere, isn't it? And omnipresence is something. That's him. And so omnipresent is an absolute contradiction to nothingness. You cannot be omnipresent and have nothingness. Omnipresence makes nothingness impossible, which is why our dead bodies go to dust. You start figuring that out, you'll be great. To repeat, annihilationism cannot be true because omniscience and omnipresent invalidate it. So if you have a position that, that living beings are annihilated, then you are in opposition to omnipresence. How do, you, how do you annihilate when omnipresence exists? Omniscience. So, therefore, now we're going to explain the actual meaning of Ecclesiastes 3.20 and 3.22. I should read it. I, okay, I'll do it. I, I, I'll do it. Uh, um, all must go to one place, and all are from the dust, and all return to the dust. Who knows the ruhah of the sons of Adam, which goes upwards, and the ruhah of the animals, which goes down to the earth? That's, that's what it is, right? I'll give you 22. So I perceive that nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in his own works, and that is his legacy, his heritage, for who can bring him to see what will happen after him? That is an interesting question. Who can see? Who can do that? Who can bring him to see what will happen after him? Who can do that after his death? Somebody can do it. Okay, to repeat a bit. God has one breath. The breath of the spirit of life of the... Of the he's got one breath of the spirit of life. It is an eternal breath. Eternity is a fact of the one breath of the living God. He is the God of the living. He defines living. Living is those who are in the new city of Jerusalem. There are not distinct, separate breaths of God. And they just told me a guy that, well, yeah, the animals got this. They're going to do this. And the humans are going to do that. It's stupid. Can I write stupid on the board? Is it okay? There's only one, only one breath. Quit trying to say those have this, we got pre-Adamites. They got some kind of breath. They got animals. They got different kind of breath. And they got Adam and, and us. We got the great breath. All the others bad breath, scope breath, Listerine breath, whatever you want to call it. There are no such thing as one God, one breath of the Spirit of life. If there were more, we would know it. He never says there's more. Where did that position come from? That's right, evolutionary philosophy. So why is it that all matters? That's what he said. So I perceive that nothing is better than that man should rejoice in his own works. And if you go to 12, and he says it fantastic. 
Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Believe God and keep his commandments. That's what he says there. It's the same statement as 3.22. Puts it in two different places. Why is it? What is it that all that matters, nothing is better than that a man should rejoice in the salvation of his legacy, his children? That's the only thing that matters. That's what he says. After he talks about what happens to animals and what happens to man, he talks about the only thing that matters is what happens to your children. Why does he say that? Nothing is better than for his sons and daughters to be in the new city of Jerusalem, Revelation 21, 22. That's all that matters. The conclusion of the whole matter, Ecclesiastes 12, 13. Believe God, keep his commandments. Believing God, John 11, 25, 8, 24. Believing that Jesus Christ is the E-I-M-I. The E-I-M-I. That's the Greek. It means being. He is the being. The first being. He's the one that bees. He's the existent one, the pre-existent one, the source of all being, the source of all life. He is the being. How all beingness comes from him. How, so how does Ecclesiastes 3.22 and Ecclesiastes 12.13 prove the immortality, the resurrection of animals? Because that's what's going on in 3.18. That's the test. And he proves to you that animals are immortal. In 3.22 and 12.13, Solomon does. That's the test, again, of Ecclesiastes 3.18. How does keeping his commandments factor into the salvation of children? The obvious answer is obvious. This is about knowing the character of God. Do you know him? Do you have an accurate opinion or assessment of his character? Or do you have some kind of caricature? Some cartoonish view of God. What do you have? That's the test. And you can solve the test by your position on what happens to animals. That's what Solomon did. So how does keeping his commandments factor into the salvation of children? So if you know the character, if you know the loving kindness, the mercy, the fairness, the justice, the Psalm 36 Five through seven, if you know the faithfulness of the living God, knowing that he will never abandon, forsake the innocent, those who had no fault, no guilt, no responsibility for the fault of animals. He, I'm sorry, the fault of humanity. Let me say that again. If you know that he will never abandon, forsake the innocent, those who had no fault, Romans 5.14, they were the innocent ones that did not sin. They had no responsibility to the fall of humanity. Did humans have responsibility to the fall of humanity? Yes. Did angels have responsibility to the fall of humanity? Yes, because you've done this, he said to Satan. There's a lake of fire now for angels. 2541 Matthew. Animals had no culpability. And if you don't know that, and, and, and then you're, he's tying that understanding to living a life that demonstrates uh, that understanding, that belief. And if you have that belief and that understanding, then you know something about God that is incredibly important. And you don't, you don't struggle. It's a life, a life well lived. It's a testimony of great value. One that leads to rejoicing. Because is there somebody that can show you the lives of your children after you're gone? Yes, there is. How powerful. What's, what does that verse mean? We'll have to figure that out. So the lesson, the test, do you believe, do you know the person of Christ? Do you know his thoughts? Do you understand Psalm 36, 5 through 7? 
Do you understand what he's trying to say to you? I'm not going to forsake. I'm not going to extinguish. I'm not going to annihilate those who had no sin. Won't do it. And if you think I'm that kind of person, you're mistaken. I'm not. I have none of that in me. We're back to 17, uh, Exodus 17, 1 through 7. Is God among us or not? Do you believe it or not? They said, you brought us out here to kill us, kill our children and kill our animals. Do you believe that's true? Are you somebody saying that? If you're somebody saying he's extinguishing animals, you're murdering, he's going to murder all the animals. Is that your view of God? Again, I'm saying to you, you need to reevaluate. You're not passing the test. You will not have that kind of joy that he describes in 322. Your children will look at you and wonder, why would we go for your, your belief system when it is unfair, unjust, unmerciful, limited? Animals are so invaluable. They're there to teach us things. We don't ever learn it because we're idiots. What's that other word? I can't, I can't say it out loud. It's not, not, I'm forbidden to say stupid. Do you know that, right? Are you? Yes. Not allowed by law. There's some kind of edict. Okay. That's all I got. I wore you out. Hopefully this concedes the animals, uh, immortality of animals. Probably not. Mm-hmm. I hope so. I'm so frustrated that people will say, I will tell a child that God is going to save his animal, but when he's an adult, I will tell him that his animal is gone forever. Yeah. What kind of evil crap is that? Oh.